Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the story of Lindsay Baum. Lindsay was only 10 years old when she went missing from the small town of McCleary, Washington in the summer of 2009. It was pretty apparent from the start that Lindsay didn't just run away, but it wouldn't be until nearly a decade later that authorities were able to confirm that Lindsay had been abducted and killed. Authorities state that they have sifted through over 40 persons of interest, but have yet to be able to connect any of them to Lindsay's murder. Her mother, Melissa, continues to fight for justice for her to this day. This is the story of Lindsay Baum. Lindsay Jo Baum was born on July 7, 1998, to her parents Melissa and Scott. Lindsay was the youngest, with one older brother named Josh. The family all lived together in Tennessee for a couple of years. But eventually, her parents divorced, and looking for a fresh start, Melissa and the kids moved to the small town of McCleary, Washington in 2009. Melissa thought it looked like a nice, quiet, and safe small town. In the year 2009, there were only about 1,600 people living in McCleary, so we are talking a very small town. You guys know the drill. Small town, people let their kids walk around freely, didn't lock their doors, that type of thing. Even the sheriff remembers letting his daughter ride her bike freely around town when she was a kid, because it was so safe. I also just have to say that McCleary's largest event is their annual bear festival, which they advertise right on the Welcome to McCleary sign. I get why Melissa fell in love with this town and thought it would be a great place to raise her kids. When I was researching this town and looking at pictures, it honestly kind of reminded me of the City of Forks from the Twilight series, which was actually one of Lindsay Baum's favorite series. 
When I look into these cases, it's not always easy to find information about what the victim was really like. There are usually a ton of generic statements like they were a good kid, they were good in school, they loved their siblings, that type of thing. And I totally get that. That's just how interviews with the media go sometimes. But I found a ton of specific information about Lindsay that I think really shines a light on her personality. Melissa says that Lindsay was a talker. So much so that they even teased her, saying that she came out of the womb talking. She was a mama's girl, she loved butterflies, and she loved reading and writing. Lindsay actually collected books and was known to scribble down short stories on things like scraps of paper or napkins wherever she went. Like I mentioned, she loved Twilight, but she was also super excited for the sixth Harry Potter movie to be coming out. And she was reading like crazy to catch up on the books before its release. I always try to look for a website or a Facebook page run by the family so I can see updates, so I can see what they're doing in terms of justice for these cases, just that type of thing. For Lindsay, I was able to find the Justice for Lindsay Baum Facebook page. And just a few weeks ago, Lindsay's mother Melissa made a post for the 12-year anniversary of her disappearance, and she described Lindsay in more detail stating, quote, Lindsay had just completed the fifth grade. She was a bright and sunny, highly intelligent and very smart child, planning her future to become a veterinarian and an author slash illustrator of books for children. She loved to sing in the shower. Lindsay had her own personal library, always collecting books. Her own sense of style, she would not be denied. She referred to it as her fashion. She loved hanging out with her friends, to include her bestie Michaela, Kyler, Cameron, and her cousins. Fighting with her brother was her favorite pastime. She took her German Shepherd cadence everywhere she went, except the night of June 26, 2009. End quote. I know that was kind of a lot of detail, but I really wanted to honor Lindsay's memory. And I personally love how honest Melissa is about describing her. Lindsay seemed like such a fun, sassy 10-year-old who had a lot of personality. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Let's talk about the summer of 2009. Lindsay just completed the fifth grade, and in her school district, that's when elementary school ended. So she was super excited about entering middle school. I don't know about you guys, but I remember that summer in between elementary school and middle school. It was so exciting. You finally feel like you aren't just a little kid anymore. 
For me and my friends, it was an entire vibe getting ready for middle school. With how sassy Lindsay seemed to be, I have to imagine she was pretty excited. But there was still plenty of summer left to enjoy. Most days, Lindsay would just hang out with her friends and her brother Josh. They'd ride their bikes around town, check out the video rental store, go swimming, just typical summer stuff. Let's jump to Thursday, June 25th, 2009. It was a typical day, absolutely nothing out of the ordinary, except this very odd statement from Lindsay. On this day, Lindsay apparently goes to her mom and tells her that she just has this terrible feeling that something really bad is going to happen. So Melissa asks Lindsay, you know, why do you feel this way? And Lindsay says she doesn't really know. She just has this really weird feeling, this really bad feeling. So Melissa reassures her that everything's going to be fine. Unfortunately, Lindsay's gut feeling was spot on because the next day she would go missing. Which brings us to Friday, June 26, 2009. According to reports, this was a very hot day in McCleary. So Lindsay and her brother Josh spend a good part of the day cooling down in a friend's pool. After this, they stop by McCleary Video to look at the new releases, and then they head home for a short period of time. Melissa remembers also having a gut feeling and a little voice in her head saying don't let Lindsay walk out the front door. But Melissa ignores it, assuming that she's just being paranoid, and lets Lindsay and Josh go on about their day. From here, the siblings walk to their friend Michaela's house. But at some point, Lindsay and Josh get in a fight over his bike being left somewhere. A very typical sibling squabble. And Josh goes back home. I've read a few different renditions about what happens next, but it looks like Lindsay becomes upset because her and Michaela aren't able to get their parents to agree to a sleepover that night. Again, typical kid stuff. So around 9pm, Lindsay starts walking home from Michaela's house. At this point, even though it's 9pm, it's still light out. And this is a route that Lindsay walked all the time, so she knew it would only take about 10 minutes to get home, which gave her plenty of time to get home before dark and before her 10pm curfew. Basically, Michaela lived between 6th and 7th Street on Maple, and Lindsay lived on 1st Street on Momsen just south of Maple. I know it can be so hard to visualize these things, so I will post a map on VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. But the point is, this isn't a far walk. It's still light out and Lindsay was familiar with this route. It's also worth noting that Lindsay was really afraid of the dark. She even called the time between midnight and 1am the witching hour. So she had plenty of incentive to make it back home quickly. I found conflicting reports about the exact time that Melissa began to get worried. But I think it's safe to say that it was around Lindsay's curfew at 10pm. Lindsay was a little sassy, but she was a good kid, so when it came time for Lindsay to be home and she wasn't, Melissa knew that something was wrong. First, she tries calling Lindsay's new cell phone, but there was no answer. This is because Lindsay accidentally left it at home. Next, Melissa calls Michaela's mom, who tells her that Lindsay left her house at about 9.10pm. So Melissa gets in her car and drives Lindsay's typical route home, but she doesn't see her anywhere. So she goes back home and calls Lindsay's friends, thinking maybe she just stopped at someone's house along the way. But again, no one has seen her. At this point, Melissa knows that something is very, very wrong, and at 10.50pm, she calls 911 to report Lindsay missing. 
Officers get to the scene and they discuss whether or not Lindsay could just be upset at her brother or upset at not being able to have the sleepover and maybe hiding in the woods. Melissa insists that because of her extreme fears of the dark, there's just no way she would be staying away from home voluntarily. She also didn't have her cell phone or any money on her. In her mind, there was just no way that Lindsay could have run away. To the credit of the police, they believe Melissa, and they treat this situation very seriously. By 3 a.m. on now the morning of Saturday, June 27th, officers from the McCleary Police Department are briefed on the situation to begin an official search for Lindsay at dawn. During this time, Melissa also takes their German Shepherd Cadence out to search for Lindsay, thinking maybe she fell and hurt herself, or passed out somewhere, and Cadence might be able to sniff her out but they come up with nothing. By noon, there were 80 deputies at the scene, and the FBI began their official investigation into Lindsay's disappearance. There were teams physically searching for Lindsay and investigators that began conducting interviews. A witness was able to confirm that Lindsay was walking along Maple Street between 5th and 6th Streets at about 9.10 p.m., so they know that she did leave Michaela's house and began walking down her usual route but this appears to be the last sighting of Lindsay. When they speak to Melissa, they learn something a little more concerning. There were actually two alarming incidents involving Lindsay just the week before. Melissa tells them that Lindsay and Michaela were at a park using the restroom when a man walked in on them. Now, I'm not sure if the bathroom was locked and this man broke in or he just walked in on them. Either way, afterwards, this man kind of freaks out and just takes off on his bike. The second incident involved Lindsay and another friend. Apparently, when they were out walking around town, they noticed that this white vehicle was following them. So they just kind of go home and tell their parents. The police do find a white vehicle matching that description at a nearby business around the time Lindsay went missing, but were ultimately never able to confirm any connection to her disappearance. Saturday comes and goes with no trace of Lindsay. Unfortunately, no Amber Alert was issued for her either. Her case just didn't fit the criteria. They had no suspect information or vehicle information. Melissa Baum was very upset about this. And honestly, so was the police chief at the time, George Crum. Although he admitted that Lindsay's case didn't fit the exact criteria for an Amber Alert, he says that he and his team spoke about looking into changing the requirements to be able to send out alerts for cases like Lindsay's. But as far as I could find, none of these changes were ever implemented. The initial search for Lindsay lasted 10 days. There were divers, helicopters, planes from the state patrol, they used dogs, they had a ton of volunteers. It seems like they really allocated a ton of resources to finding her. Soon, their entire command center would be moved into City Hall to give them more space. Although the physical search for Lindsay ended at that 10-day mark, the investigation continued. McCleary police say that they spoke to every single resident on Maple Street and searched the inside and outside of over 150 homes in the area. They reviewed credit card transactions of businesses in the area, and they got a list of every single cell phone that pinged off of the one cell phone tower in town during that time. They gathered surveillance video, they interviewed the owner of McCleary Video three times, and checked Lindsay's MySpace account for clues. Nothing led them back to Lindsay. 
Sheriff Crum told local newspaper The Olympian, who has done amazing coverage on this case, by the way, that Lindsay's case was deeply personal to him. Not only did his daughter grow up walking the streets of this town, the police station was only a few blocks away from Lindsay's house, so he saw her almost every single day walking with her friends. Lindsay wasn't a stranger to him, and he felt a responsibility to her and the town of McCleary to find her. Like we often see in cases from smaller towns like McCleary, Lindsay's disappearance absolutely rocked the residents there. Everyone was suspicious of each other, and no one let their kids roam around town anymore. Several businesses in the area reported a steep drop in sales, but in their interviews, they said that they understood why. No one felt safe anymore. One resident even went to the county assessor's office to get the name and address of every resident on Maple Street along Lindsay's route, and this person posted them to an online forum implying that one of them was most likely responsible. Luckily, Lindsay's case gained a lot of attention really quickly. Her photo was on the cover of People magazine. It was featured on The Oprah Winfrey Show, America's Most Wanted, and Nancy Grace. She was the subject of countless news broadcasts, radio alerts, and on several billboards. There were also five large trailer trucks with her poster on them placed strategically throughout town. This brought in thousands of leads and about 12 persons of interest at this time. Of course, over the next few months, they slowly began to eliminate each person of interest, and not all of them have been named but there are a few that were brought up in quite a bit of my research. At this particular time in the case, the most notable was a man named Tim Hartman. Tim Hartman owned a jewelry store in McCleary and was also a volunteer firefighter. When he was initially interviewed by police, he told them that when Lindsay went missing, he was about an hour away taking a class and performing an ambulance run. It was some type of ambulance certification thing from what I could find, and he even showed them the certificate. But when police looked into it, they discovered that Hartman's class actually ended a bit earlier than he said it did. They also found video surveillance, placing him at Mike's Market, which was just a few blocks away from where Lindsay went missing, at the exact time that Lindsay went missing. On top of this, Hartman actually got in contact with Melissa Baum that night and drove her around looking for Lindsay. Hartman would claim that Chief Crum asked him directly to help with the search, but Crum denies this. At this point, the police launch a full-scale investigation into Tim Hartman. They searched his vehicle, his home, and the jewelry store that he owned. Over 100 items were taken, including hairs, ropes, straps, handwritten notes about Lindsay, and apparently a fingernail. Many in McCleary believe that Hartman is responsible for what happened to Lindsay. But as of recording this, he's never officially been named a suspect or arrested in connection to the case. Not many of the other persons of interest were ever named publicly, but there were a ton of news reports about searches and stories from these unnamed persons of interest. There was one man who was staying with someone near where Lindsay went missing that also gave conflicting stories about his whereabouts. There was a story about a man who was working at a retirement home who said that he had been working all night, but was actually fired earlier that day. This person also told a friend that he was so sad that Lindsay was kidnapped and dismembered, 
when at this time, Lindsay was just missing. There was also an incident where Melissa was driving and was being followed by this man, so she called police. The police end up pulling him over, and he said that he thought that she looked suspicious and that she could have been involved in Lindsay's disappearance, and he was just trying to check the situation out. They search this guy's house, but they find nothing. The police were highly encouraging the community to come forward with any tips that they might have. They even published some warning signs for the type of behavior that they thought people should be on the lookout for. Police told the public to be on the lookout for people who have suddenly changed their appearance, got rid of a car, had unexplained absences from work, anyone with unexplained cuts or bruises on their face or arms, someone picking up or resuming bad habits like smoking or drinking, and changes in mood, like being depressed or irritable for no reason. This really reminds me of the behavioral analysis created in the yogurt shop murders. Just some general guidelines for people to be on the lookout for. Although I completely understand why police did this, it definitely just added to the paranoia that the people of McCleary were already experiencing. And they just started calling in everything. There were a ton of false leads and tips. One that I found was worth mentioning was someone actually called the police to say that they saw Lindsay in the back of someone's car on the highway. So the police pull out all the stops. They're pulling out multiple officers. They get someone racing 100 miles an hour to set up some type of intervention for this car. They're trying to intercept them. But ultimately, Lindsay wasn't in the car. And the person submitting the tip admitted that they never saw Lindsay in the car. But it was actually a psychic who told them that she was in a car that looked like that on the freeway. It's unfortunate. I understand that people want to come forward with information, but you got to be truthful about those things. But I do think it's encouraging that authorities ask people to call in anything they found suspicious. I think it's much better than the alternative. It's just unfortunate that nothing was leading them to finding Lindsay. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by ZocDoc. If you guys have been following my journey on social media, you know that I am in my Sarah era. After everything I've been through over the last couple years, I'm really just focusing on myself and doing that unapologetically. So I have become that one friend in my friend group that loves to treat myself. A lot of the time that looks like a long bath, a face mask, maybe a special foot soak, but I also knew that I needed to make my health a priority. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. What I really liked is that all the doctors have verified reviews from actual real patients. You don't have to just guess if they're good. ZocDoc is how I found my new doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com justice and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoc.com slash justice. Zocdoc.com slash justice. After this large 10-day search, Melissa continued to hold weekly searches for Lindsay for some time. And it does appear that Lindsay's father, Scott, did fly in to help a bit. I could barely find any information about this man. But it does appear that he was in the National Guard and at risk of being deployed to Iraq around this time so I don't know if he was ever deployed or just went back home after helping in the searches. But at the end of the day, he was cleared, so I don't think that there's much reason to believe that he could have been involved. Of course, Lindsay's disappearance changed her family forever. 
Melissa has expressed regret that her son lost his sister and his mother on that day. She said it just tore the family apart. Even Lindsay's dog Cadence apparently didn't eat for two weeks after she went missing. For months, Lindsay's room sat with crime scene tape across the door to preserve any evidence that they might have missed or may later become relevant. Just sitting there as a reminder that Lindsay was not only gone, but that something terrible most likely happened to her. Of course, suspicion also fell on the family like it always does. And many people chastised Melissa for letting Lindsay walk alone that late at night. Melissa fights this by saying that she shouldn't have to be afraid to let her children walk around their neighborhood while the sun is still shining. And I agree with her. The focus shouldn't be on blaming Melissa for letting Lindsay walk around their neighborhood. The focus should be on why the neighborhood isn't safe. Ultimately, the scrutiny and suspicion got so bad that Melissa took Josh and moved to another town just a few months after Lindsay went missing. The investigation into Lindsay's disappearance went into 2010 pretty strong. In March, the FBI came back out and went door-to-door re-interviewing everyone. They said that this was a part of some new recommendations from the FBI Child Abduction Rapid Development Team. They also brought in profilers, psychologists, computer technicians, and a ton of other specialists. They also did a complete third-party review on the investigation as a whole to provide feedback and guidance. Just three months later, on the one-year anniversary, authorities re-interviewed everyone on Maple Street for now the third time. In October, inmates from the Cedar Creek Correction Center were brought out to help in another physical search for Lindsay. In the next few years, there would be more searches and surveillance video released to the public in hopes of finding new witnesses. These witnesses were identified, but again, led to nothing. In June of 2013, an age-progressed photo of Lindsay showing what she might have looked like at age 14 was released. In February of 2014, a human skull was found in a crab pot off ocean shores, and the town went crazy. Everyone thought it could be Lindsay, but DNA testing ultimately proved otherwise. It seems like almost every year there was something, some search, some discovery, or some vigil for Lindsay. Until there wasn't. Feeling like Lindsay's case wasn't as much of a priority anymore and desperate for answers, in early 2017, Melissa begins working with private investigator Rose Winquist. Rose actually takes the case pro bono. She said that she'd been following it for years and just wanted to help. And Rose brought a whole team with her. This team included her two sons, her husband Tom, who is a former Kings County Sheriff's deputy and also apparently had some relation to the Green River Killer case. She also brings in victims advocate lawyer Anne Bremner and Elizabeth Hudson. Rose and Elizabeth Hudson end up putting together this massive database for Lindsay's case and they input over 500,000 individual pieces of data. According to Rose, this database also tracks things like people who have abused children, people who sell drugs to children, groom them, traffic them, sex offenders, that type of thing. She also has her own list of about 20 persons of interest. I'm not sure if these 20 persons of interest were a part of the 40 that the police had on their list by this time or completely separate. 
but by August of 2017, there would be three more people added to both lists of persons of interest. This is when three brothers are arrested in their home about 30 minutes from where Lindsay went missing. These three brothers are Edwin Emery, age 79, Thomas Every, age 80, and Charles Every, age 82. They bought this house way back in 1962 and had been living there together for about 50 years. All three men were unmarried and none had children. Around this time in 2017, Charles apparently wasn't doing very well, and the family decided that it would be best if he moved to an assisted living facility. His adult niece from another sibling who did not live in the house was given the task of gathering his things and helping them all clean up a bit, as the house apparently had gotten pretty out of control. When she walked in, she knew that they obviously needed a little help, but she was stunned by what she actually found. And good on her, she immediately called the police. One police report stated that the house was filled, quote, floor to ceiling, with child exploitative images, children's clothing, articles, toys, and movies. The report went on to describe the items found in the house further, stating that it was, quote, dozens of pairs of children's shoes, most of which are penny loafer style, with pennies inserted in the front of the shoes, several pairs of minor female children style underwear, dozens of books and articles related to child homicide, child sexual assault, and missing and murdered female child victims, to include both local and national cases. Dozens of images of minor female children, apparently taken from advertisements placed in magazines and newspapers, on which some contain handwritten notes concerning the sexual abuse and murder of the depicted child and or children. Dozens of scraps of papers containing handwritten notes detailing ritualistic and satanic sacrifices of minor female children. The sexual abuse of minor female children. The grooming and supplying of minor female children with vodka placed inside of soda pop. And the repeated, detailed description of how the minor female children would wear penny loafer shoes prior to the abuse and murder. End quote. We know that authorities often connect findings like this to missing or murdered children in the area. We see this all the time. But one reason this was alarming for Lindsay's case in particular was because included in all of those flyers of missing and murdered children was, you guessed it, Lindsay's flyer. There were also a few other shocking discoveries. Authorities discovered that Charles actually worked in a children's hospital as a janitor in the 1970s and 80s and he wrote an entire manifesto describing sexual abuse towards children and rituals that involved abusing children. This wasn't just some sick fantasy. At least one family member came forward to say that both Charles and Edwin sexually abused her and her mother for years. This entire discovery was obviously incredibly shocking. But what really upset me was when I read that Charles had actually been caught with child pornography four years earlier. This is when he brought his computer into an office depot for repairs. The employee, thank goodness, called authorities. But despite admitting to being in possession of these materials, and also admitting that he had sexually abused his sister and her daughter, and was sexually attracted to, quote, sub-teenage girls, 
he wasn't charged with anything. Just let go. When it comes to the house, apparently Thomas and Edwin, his other brothers, just tried to blame everything on Charles, saying that there were some areas of the house that they hadn't entered for months. But with that being said, Edwin admitted to being sexually attracted to children. And Thomas admitted to having child pornography, but only because he considered it to be art. Ultimately, the police searched the property for over 30 hours but they weren't able to recover anything that definitively linked them to Lindsay's case or any other case. While I was researching these brothers, I found out that child pornography in general is apparently a huge issue in the state of Washington. According to a 2015 Seattle PI article, Washington ranked number one in the nation for peer-to-peer network users trading child pornography. At any one time, the Seattle PD had up to 25,000 active leads in relation to this issue, but only eight investigators to work them. So I can see how this house of horrors could get to this level, especially after Charles Emery was caught and let go without any repercussions just years prior to this discovery. Ultimately, all three men were arrested for having these items in their home, However, Charles Emery's charges were dropped after it was deemed that he lacked the capacity to understand the proceedings and to assist in his own defense. He was later sent to a state psychiatric facility. Edwin and Thomas Emery were sentenced to nine months in prison on two counts of second-degree possession of depictions of minors engaged in sexual content. They both received probation that limited their contact with minors but neither were charged for sexually assaulting their family members. Just a month after the Emery brothers were named persons of interest in Lindsay's investigation, there was another shocking discovery. In Mount Rainier Park, two hunters were in the woods when they found a piece of a human skull. Obviously, they're completely freaked out, so they call police and lead them back to the skull. It is collected for evidence. But since they don't know if it's actually connected to a crime, it just sits in a really long queue at an FBI lab in Virginia to await testing. The area where the skull was found was about 100 miles from where Lindsay was last seen. So Melissa didn't immediately think the worst. In fact, she still insisted that Lindsay was alive somewhere. But about eight months later, in May of 2018, the results came back and it was confirmed to be Lindsay's. There was a huge press conference to announce this discovery, and to discuss the extensive search efforts that were made over the nine years since Lindsay went missing. Melissa Baum also made her first public statement since she found out her daughter was no longer alive. Um, First of all, I want to start by thanking um, law enforcement, um, McCleary PD, Grays Harbor County, the FBI, the Washington State Patrol, Um, departments too numerous to mention individually Um, all the volunteers everyone who's ever spent time out searching um, even anyone that's ever said a prayer for my daughter I I just want to reach out and let you know that I greatly appreciate it Um, as far as recent events I I attempted to write a statement on on what exactly to say to convey how I feel Um, there are no words The fact is a monster stole my 10-year-old little girl and they murdered her and they dumped her like trash in the woods. 
So my fight now has turned from looking for my daughter to finding who killed her. This person is a monster, and I grew up teaching my children that monsters didn't exist. So now when you're telling your children monsters don't exist, you're lying. Just keep that in mind. They do exist, and they don't look like monsters. They look like your next-door neighbor. They look like the person who lives down the street or the person who works in your school. Yeah, I just, I urge anyone that has any information, any knowledge of any kind to please come forward. We need, we need justice. Um, the people who did this to Lindsay deserve to be punished. And the children still out there, your children deserve to be safe. And as long as we allow monsters like this on our streets, none of our children are safe. Thank you. Authorities have still not released how Lindsay died or if they have any suspect DNA, but they did confirm that it was a homicide and that they were looking for her killer or killers. Melissa Baum is also fighting for another search of the area. Her PI, Rose Winquist, actually told reporters that with another search of the area, she believes that they could find suspect DNA. This leads me to believe that they probably don't have any suspect DNA, but I can't say for sure. They also won't release when they believe Lindsay was placed there. What we do know is the road that leads to this area where she was found didn't go anywhere but this recreational area. This is basically an area where people hunted, hiked, and snowboarded depending on the time of year. So authorities believe that the person was most likely familiar with the area, as opposed to stumbling upon it. We also know it was a very tough area to search. Authorities closed down the entire area for two weekends. They went through hills, valleys, ravines, etc. But they haven't released if they found anything else in relation to Lindsay. All we know is that a piece of her skull was found in this area, and they believe that she was murdered. That's pretty much it. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. A celebration of life was held for Lindsay, and the city dedicated a small section of Bierbauer Park to her. Lindsay went to this particular park almost every single day. In this area for Lindsay, her banner with the words, Do you know who murdered me? hangs across the chain link fence. There's also a plaque with her picture and story. 
There's this beautiful teal butterfly bench because butterflies were her favorite. And there are small trinkets, painted rocks, stuffed animals, and notes left by the community. It's a beautiful tribute. Melissa Baum has made it very clear that she didn't want this to be a memorial garden. She wants this to be a remembrance garden. So that's what they put on the plaque. Lindsay's Remembrance Garden. When I see interviews of Melissa Baum, I can tell that she's not at peace. She wants justice. She doesn't want this Remembrance Garden to just be a memorial to her daughter to honor her memory. She specifically wants to remind whoever killed Lindsay, quote, they will be looking over their shoulder every day for the rest of their lives until they are caught or dead, end quote. The community as a whole continues to remember Lindsay and spread awareness about her case. There was a Justice for Lindsay booth at the McCleary Annual Bear Festival, and volunteers marched her banner down the parade route on what would have been Lindsay's 20th birthday. The historic David F. Biles House has pledged to illuminate the house with red lights in honor of Lindsay's favorite color every year from the day that she went missing on June 26th to her birthday on July 7th until Lindsay gets justice. They also hung her banner on the fence to ensure that everyone who visits knows Lindsay's story. However, despite so many members of this community continuing to rally around getting justice for Lindsay, it appears that others, including many in positions of power, are just kind of ready for it to all go away. In my opinion, of course. Like I mentioned, at this park where Lindsay's Remembrance Garden is located, there's a banner with the words, Do you know who murdered me across it? Before Lindsay's remains were found, the banner read, Do you know who kidnapped me? and it hung there for almost nine years. But it was updated accordingly to replace the word kidnapped with the word murdered. This apparently didn't sit right with many members of the community. Mayor of McCleary, Brenda Orfer, and the city council received several complaints for the use of the word murder. They said that these complaints came by word of mouth. Basically, they were saying it wasn't appropriate for an area where children were playing. It was fine to say that Lindsay had been kidnapped, but murdered apparently went too far. Now, I kind of get this. Kind of. I mean, not really if I'm being honest, but I'm trying to be impartial. What I cannot understand is a conversation the mayor and city council had about it during one of their publicly broadcasted meetings. Melissa Baum watched this virtual meeting, recorded it, and uploaded part of it to the Justice for Lindsay Baum Facebook page. I am really trying to not be personally offended by this conversation, given my personal experience with officials in my sister Alyssa's case. So I really don't want to preface this with anything other than I don't like it, and I don't find it respectful at all. But I want you to listen for yourself and make up your own mind. Council or comments from council. Yeah, I got one more. Right on. Have you heard back yet from the advocacy group or the sheriff's department on the banners on where they need to return to? So I had an email back from the undersheriff, is that his title? Indicating that they that's not their banner, quote unquote. Um like I guess the banner belongs to some group and not particularly to the victim. So they couldn't use the victim's advocate group to 
contact them about it because it's not her sign. Can't um, take it down and have somebody pick it up? Well, that was his suggestion to me was that, well, you could just take it down. I'm sure you'll get a call. <laughs> I decide if I want to get that call. It's on city property. And I think that we should take it down, roll it up, and then if somebody wants it, they can come pick it up. Yeah. And I let him know that we do still have the one hanging on the police department right now. It's still hanging on the of the police department. It's on city property. And I think that we should take both of them down. And I think we should roll them up. I don't think it's appropriate that those be up any longer. We have the memorial. Right. And that's permanent. And that's not coming down. I think both of those, I'm sorry, but I'm, I am hearing too much about these banners in town. And people don't like to. When you go to the park and you see that. And there's children playing there. You know. Down. So I think we should take them down. They're on city property. If somebody asks, say, well, we took them down. You're welcome to pick them up. Any other thoughts from council? I, I totally agree with Joy. I mean, something I was kind of thinking of last night, and I was looking through the city website, and I didn't see anything pertaining really to signage on city property or right away, and as far as banners and that stuff go. But I got word, I think it was last weekend, that someone had made an even bigger banner than the Who Murdered Me one hung up at the park for donating to a pet fund. Uh, and then that one was removed, I guess. But I would like to see if we're going to start having more of that. Yeah. Uh, maybe a ordinance. I don't know, like a approval process, I guess, yes. where someone comes in the city hall, says this is what we want to put up, and then after so many days, it has to come down. If it's not down, then the city takes it down and then charges a small fee for taking it down. But then they get back their signs. This is kind of my thought process. So. I agree. I think we this should. This sounds like a great topic for a committee. So, ordinance for committee. There we go. But I think, I think for right now, I think it's time for that sign to come down. Right. But maybe tomorrow morning. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Okay. It's just, it's just not appropriate. And like I said in my email, if anybody does know anything, either they're not telling, or they, they don't know. You know, I mean, it's been 11 years. If there's new mm -hmm. information out there, somebody's not going to drive through town and say, oh, I know all about that. I think I'll call the police. Not going to happen. Right. Well, I mean, and on that note, I kind of wanted to add to that. I think the whenever we get a chance to get the city website, the, at least move the uh, reward information stuff to maybe the police tab. That way, it's oh, not one of the page. first things you see on the city homepage. I did not know that was on the city homepage. Okay. But, uh, that's just, I mean, that's my opinion. I mean, not to be cold hearted about it, that's not it at all, but it's 11 it's, years old. Yeah, it's 11 years old, but when people come into town and they want to stop and have a picnic at the park or yeah. take their kids out or to play, nobody wants to see a who murdered me bear hanging up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and so, okay. Um, we can accommodate that. I, I believe, Todd, would you, one of your crews be doing that? And then we can hand it off to Chief to hold at the police department until someone claims it? Yep, we're going to get everything to Chief. Okay. And, and the one on the police department, too. I think all those banners need to come down. It's, it's not a new thing. And the one on the police department, we do have 
Uh, we've already communicated with the sheriff and they will be able to communicate with the family when that one's coming down permanently. So chief, chief can follow up with the with Sheriff Scott on that because we had already let them let the sheriff's department know that at some point it would be coming down. Um, and they will come down together. We'll communicate to the family on that one. So, all right. Any questions? Anything? Anything else? I think that was it for me. Okay. Here's Just two other things I thought of briefly. Um, we are installing a ballot box. In my personal opinion, if this banner clearly violates a particular code, fine, take it down. Ask them to revise it, whatever. But to insinuate that because it's been 11 years since Lindsay was last seen, there's no hope for these banners to raise awareness breaks my heart for Melissa. How did this conversation move from this banner is offensive to let's take down all the banners and move the reward information on the website? I just can't imagine being Melissa Baum watching this and realizing that they essentially want to remove all the banners from the town and they're laughing about it. The banner at the park was eventually taken down, but Melissa fought back, stating, quote, I'm offended that my banners offend them. I'm offended that my 10-year-old little girl's murder does not outrage and offend them. I'm offended that they would have the gall to think that taking my banners down is an appropriate action to take. End quote. She also started a GoFundMe and raised over $3,000 for many more banners to be placed on private residences all over town. A spokesperson for the family told local news that this wasn't about scaring kids. It was about educating them and encouraging a conversation about what happened to Lindsay in hopes of preventing it from happening to another child. After all, this person or these people that killed Lindsay are still out there and possibly, probably, still in the small town of McCleary. As far as I could find, Melissa retained legal counsel and the banner was put back up at the park. I also saw that Lindsay's flyer is still on the front page of cityofmccleary.com. I understand that people probably want to move on, but I also understand how that's impossible for Melissa and those that loved Lindsay to do so. Especially because there are still recent developments in this case, or at least recent developments that could be related to this case. Just last month, so June of 2021, a man was arrested after DNA linked him to the kidnapping and rape of a 17-year-old from 18 years prior. Undersheriff Brad Johnson told local news, quote, We do believe he was living in McCleary at that time. You know, they do have similarities. In fact, they were both kidnapped, and they were from a similar area. So it's definitely something that's got our eyebrows raised. End quote. We don't know if this man is connected to Lindsay but I personally think having those banners in place would make sure that no one forgets her and make sure that everyone knows her story. People who do things like kidnap and murder children don't always keep it a secret. Some kid who saw her banner at that park could overhear a conversation from their mother, grandfather, whoever, recognize that it's about Lindsay, and report it. It may seem like a stretch, but crazier things have happened in cases like this. You just never know. Unfortunately, this is where Lindsay's case sits today. Thousands of man-hours went into looking for her, 
multiple agencies were involved, and they combed through over 40 persons of interest. But nothing has led them to finding Lindsay's killer. Yet. At this point, I think it's safe to say that Melissa Baum is not only not at peace, but she's pissed and determined. I can't say I blame her for a second. I imagine that she is incredibly grateful to have her daughter's remains and this remembrance garden. She actually still posts about it on the Facebook page for Lindsay to this day. But I don't blame her for also wanting justice for Lindsay. Which brings me right to our call to action. To reiterate what Melissa Baum said in her first public statement after Lindsay was found, Lindsay needs justice. Please share Lindsay's picture and her story in hopes of not only getting justice for Lindsay, but also maybe preventing this from happening to another child. I also want to encourage you to go show Melissa some support on her Facebook page, Justice for Lindsay Baum. Lindsay Baum would have turned 23 on July 7th, 2021, the day before this episode comes out. As a reminder, Lindsay was 10 years old when she went missing. She was a white female with brown hair and brown eyes. At that time, she was 4 foot 9 and weighed 80 pounds. The night she went missing, she was wearing a light blue hooded shirt, blue jeans, a mismatched bikini, and black shoes. There is a $40,000 reward for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the person or people that killed Lindsay. If you have any information about Lindsay, please contact Private Investigator Rose Winquist at 206-229-5055. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit voicesforjusticepodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.